we're seeing the sun peek a little bit through the clouds. That's nice. Helps. Uh, before we read, then, would you please pray with me? Lord, help us to feel your greatness here. Not in a way that scares us away, but in a way that draws us close. As we hear now your voice from your word, would you humble us so that we would see your work of grace in us. Hold your word up as a mirror to ourselves and as a window into your heart. And guide us now by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the book of Hebrews in chapter 8. We'll begin here in verse 6 and read through the end of the chapter. This is Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since he, it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one to his neighbor and each to his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is God's word. Now, we will be camping out here in this text for the next several weeks. We'll be spending time here with the new covenant and when we finish after these, and probably a month here together, when we finish, you might be able to recite this with me as I read it. And I suppose that would not be a bad thing to have it so ingrained in us. This is the perfect ground on which to set up camp for a while. Because this is a discussion of the new covenant. And the new covenant is very important for us in order to understand our relationship to God. 
The new covenant is a better covenant because it's based on better promises. So we, we really, really want to get this. And we can see the emphasis that the author of Hebrews puts upon this new covenant. If you were reading along with me in your own Bibles, perhaps the text, uh, some of the editors of the text have indented sections of it. You can see sort of the jagged edges instead of being smooth along the edges. That's because this section, verses 8 through 12, this large chunk of text is a quote directly from the Old Testament. It's a section that the Lord himself is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31. This is the longest quotation from the Old Testament in the New Testament. So the author here is not just mentioning or talking about the New Covenant. He is reciting the entire key text about the New Covenant here. And that should cause us to perk up a little bit, to pay attention to what he's saying. So it's similar to if you're listening to someone talk and they mention the Gettysburg Address, say, that's going to sound different than if, as they're talking, they start to recite it. Four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, I have to read it, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure, and so on and so on. If they cite just the beginning, we, we know what they're talking about, but when they start to cite all of it, we, we realize then that the person wants us more than to just recognize the Gettysburg Address or the New Covenant. They want us to notice the words of what it is saying. There is a lot of gold in this new covenant for us to sift through. So as we do this over the next several weeks, it won't be repetitive. There's various aspects to pull out of it, which means that we're going to save the content of the new covenant for future weeks. This Sunday, today, we want to look at the context of the new covenant. Not the content, but the context. In other words, what brought the new covenant about? And in order to do that, we need to understand what a covenant is. You know, this is a, a word that we don't typically use in our everyday language, or at least here culturally, even though culture uses covenants all the time. So one example of covenant in the Bible is, is back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 21. There's a covenant made between Abraham and, and Abimelech. So Abraham's traveling into this new country that the Lord God has called him into. He's got a whole bunch of people with him, family, flocks, all those things. And he's settling down in this new territory. And Abraham has dug a well but uh, Abimelech, who's the commander of this local army, his servants come in and take over the well. And of course, that's my well. I dug that well, well, that's my land. And so there's a bit of a confrontation between Abraham and Abimelech, and, and they settle it fairly quickly and fairly simply. Abraham gives Abimelech seven lambs as a witness that he had dug the well. And Abimelech agrees to the terms. 
that Abraham can keep the well. And the two men, it says, swore an oath or a covenant to one another over this. And if the covenant was upheld, there would be blessing and peace over that well. If the covenant's broken by one or the other, then of, then of course there's going to be some strife and war, some sort of consequence about this. So a covenant then is a formal binding agreement about how two parties are going to relate to each other on a particular thing. Sometimes we see that uh, in a more business sense like, like, like this with Abraham and Abimelech. Uh, sometimes you see it in the backseat of your car with young kids. Have you ever had one of those where he's poking me, she's kicking me, those sorts of things, and one of them, usually the older one who's trying to be a little snarky, says, this is mine. You know, they drag their little, little hand across, they make an imaginary line and say, this is my side, and that's your side. You can have this, and I'll have this, and then there's peace for all of five seconds while the covenant is upheld. That's a minor version of it. Usually it's a little more serious than that. In fact, the areas in which we see covenant happening the most is in a marriage this is a more relational covenant, but it's still formal. It's still binding. And that's the reason why in a, in a marriage ceremony, we require the couple to make vows to one another. And the vows are not just saying what you like about the other person, how cute they are, how smart they are, how happy they make you, although that may all be true. The vows are a commitment to faithfulness to that other person. That's what a covenant is then amongst two human parties. Now, in the scripture, we see the Lord making a number of covenants with people. It happens about half a dozen places, specifically in the Old Testament. He makes uh, covenants with an individual and then all the people underneath him. So he makes covenant with Adam, with Noah, with the famous rainbow as the sign of the covenant. He makes a covenant with Abraham, with Moses, with David. And each of these covenants are not separate covenants that are totally distinct from one another. They're connected. Those covenants from the Lord are built upon one another. And the author of Hebrews just lumps all of those covenants together as one covenant that he here calls the first covenant. And if you look in the text at the very end, here's his summary of the status of, of the, the first covenant. The very last sentence of chapter thir or verse 13, he says, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The first covenant is obsolete, growing old, and ready to vanish away. And this is not because the first covenant wore out like a pair of pants. Have you got that pair of pants in your drawer that's so worn in spots that it shows maybe parts of your body that you shouldn't maybe wear as publicly? <laughs> and so that, those pair of pants are too worn out to wear in certain contexts. Or, nor is it worn out in the sense that it went out of style. If you've still got a pair of bell-bottoms or... I don't know what's in or out of style, but they came, those came back in style for a while. Whatever's out of style, that's not in the, the way that it's worn out. You'll notice here in verse 13, it says, in speaking of a new covenant, 
He, God, makes the first one obsolete. In other words, it is God who has worn this out. He put the first covenant out of use when he ushered in the new covenant. Now, why, why did God do this? Why did he make the first covenant obsolete? He tells us here that there was a flaw or a fault in the covenant relationship. That was the issue with the first covenant. He talks about it in verse 7 and 8. He said, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there wouldn't have been occasion to look for a second, but he finds fault with them. There was not a problem with the covenant itself. That pair of pants was just fine. There was a problem with the people who were in the covenant. They'd gotten too big for their britches. So how? How then are the people of the covenant at fault? And we know every covenant or every oath comes with terms and conditions. So if you get a new cell phone plan and they put that huge document in front of you that's got all that little tiny print that you have to put on three pairs of glasses to be able to read, terms of the covenant. That's part of the vow or the agreement that you're making with that cell phone company. So there are terms of the covenant. The first covenant with the Lord looks back uh, on a time that the Lord brought the people out of Egypt and listen to the conditions that he makes in the covenant. This is in Exodus. What chapter is it? 19? Yes. Exodus chapter 19. You can turn there if you wish. He's now re-emphasizing the covenant here, what's sometimes called the Sinai covenant. Uh, so listen for the condition here. You'll notice the tiny word, if. I'll lean on it when we get to it. Uh, but Exodus chapter 19, verse 3. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountains, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. In other words... Under this covenant with God and the people, there was tremendous blessing for the people. He says, the whole world is mine, but you, you will be my treasured possession. You'll be a kingdom of priests. You'll be a holy nation. And all of that will be true if, what? If you obey. If you keep my covenant. And if you do that, you'll be blessed and you'll be a blessing if you follow the Lord's good ways. The response to this from the people 
when they're told, this will be your blessing if you obey. They did not scoff at those conditions. They did not try to negotiate new terms. They, they didn't say, no, no, that's too hard. And they did not ask the Lord, why should we obey? I mean, he's the Lord after all. But the response of the people is to eagerly agree to the terms of the covenant. There's this big ceremony that happens around it. It looks a lot like a, a, a wedding ceremony in some ways. This is a few chapters later in Exodus chapter 24. Listen now to how they respond to the covenant. Exodus 24 verse 3. Moses came and told all the people the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And and Moses took half of the blood and he put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And, And then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. There's all this ceremony around the covenant, and they pledge their vows. I do. We really do. We will obey. We will be faithful to the covenant. And of course, we know that that pledge doesn't last very long. It's not even a month before these people are at the foot of Mount Sinai flirting with other women, making other gods out of gold. This is when they're they're making the golden calf and offering gifts and sacrifices to it instead of to God. They did not continue in the covenant, but they had broken it. The fault then was not with the covenant, but with the people. And that broken covenant continues not just with that generation, but person after person, generation after generation breaks the covenant with God. That's what the the whole book of Hosea is about. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, maybe you're an expert and can preach this better than I can. Uh, But you remember that in in, in the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea is told by God to marry a woman named Gomer, in my head sounds, uh, it reminds me of the Andy Griffith show, the guy with the, is that the, am I thinking of the right person? No. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to try the voice. Uh, But that's what I think. Gomer's a woman here in this context, and Hosea is told to marry a woman named Gomer, and she is famously known in their culture as a a well-known prostitute. And that was supposed to be shocking. It's as if God had told say, Billy Graham to marry a porn star. We're supposed to look at that and go, ooh, whoa. And if the book of Hosea were a movie, 
if it were put on the Hallmark Channel or some Christian station, there would be a desire to fix it, you know, clean it up and, and, and make the problem go away by the end. You know, the story would go that Gomer is so moved by the goodness and faithfulness of her husband that she turns her life around, that she puts away her, her old ways and that she stays faithful to the covenant and they have kids and a happy life together all of their days. But that's not what happens in the book of Hosea. In Hosea, we see Gomer chasing after other men, having children with those other men. We see Gomer taking gifts and money from her lovers in exchange for who knows what. And we see Gomer weeping over her situation, but she still continues to go back to her old ways. Gomer is a picture of Israel who had broken the marriage covenant. Uh, Hosea is much blunter than this even. He doesn't just say you've broken the covenant. Hosea says their deeds, Israel's deeds, will not permit them to return to their God for the spirit of whoredom is within them and they don't know the Lord. This is life under the first covenant. That the people live with broken faithfulness and a spirit of whoredom. And we know that the Lord, in his mercy and through the work of Jesus, according to his good plan and promise, will bring new days. The days of the new covenant are coming, he says, that will vanish the first covenant. The new covenant still has conditions of obedience and faithfulness, but the Lord will provide a way to make those conditions be met by the people. We'll talk more about that next week. But for the rest of our time today, I want to ask one big question. Why then, if the new covenant is so great... Why was the first covenant necessary? Why was the first covenant necessary? We know that the Lord is all good. The Lord is all wise. The Lord is all powerful. The Lord sees all and all things happen according to his purpose. He is never operating under a backup plan or some sort of uh, plan B. So it's not as if uh, the people broke the first covenant and so the Father, the Son, and the Spirit huddle up and go, what do we do now? <laughs> the, you know, they broke the covenant. We want to relate to our people. So, oh, I have an idea. Let's, let's cook up this new thing and we'll call it a new covenant. It's going to be better, better promises. Everything's going to be better. Yeah, that's a better, that's a better plan. No, that's not the way we get, it goes. We know the new covenant has always been a part of God's ultimate plan of our relationship to him. That's why it's called the everlasting covenant by the blood of Jesus. But we also know that the first covenant was established as part of God's good and coherent plan. So what purpose did the first covenant serve? What purpose does the first covenant serve? The answer, I think, is this. 
the first covenant causes us to see the fault within ourselves. The first covenant causes us to see the fault within ourselves. And to call it fault is being generous. I mean, if you ask any person, Christian or not, if you ask any person if he's faultless, if he's a thinking person at all, the average person will agree that he is not faultless. Of course. Everybody makes mistakes. Nobody's perfect. Of course, we all have faults. But the first covenant is actually tapping into our faults at a much deeper level. The first covenant shows us that we are disobedient and quick to be disobedient. The first covenant shows us that sin is radical, meaning it comes from the root of ourselves. If you've ever been pushed by your family or something else and suddenly you get angry and it comes out of nowhere, that's not coming out of nowhere. It's coming out of our deepest selves. In our deepest selves, our nature is to be covenant breakers, to be cheaters on the marriage with God. We chase after other lovers and we take gifts from whatever we think will bring us the most pleasure. This is because the human heart has a spirit of whoredom within it. And so we cannot return to the Lord. It is very, very important that we get this, that we understand this, that we know our sins so that we can come to admit it, to acknowledge it, even to confess it before God. So in order to help us get this, God does not just skip to the new covenant where he's going to change our hearts and enable us to love and obey him as we follow after Jesus. But instead, God will start with the first covenant in order to show us our own heart, to show us that I don't want to love him, that I don't want to obey him. And that awareness of sin must come first. I think then that it's helpful that we call it the first covenant, not just the old covenant. Because old sounds like something that maybe is just outdated. It doesn't maybe even have any benefit anymore. Like I have an old coffee cup. I drank the coffee out of it, and so now I don't need it anymore. I think it's helpful that we call it the first covenant or the previous covenant or better, the preparatory covenant, the covenant that prepares us. The first covenant is like a rake that hurts but tears through and tills the soil of our heart. Otherwise, the seeds planted there will not take. There's good reason for the first covenant then. Uh, Andrew Murray, a South African theologian and, and preacher from the previous century, in his book, uh, The Two Covenants, says this, 
the old covenant was indispensably necessary to waken man's desires, to call forth his efforts, to deepen the sense of dependence on God, to convince of his sin and impotence, and so to prepare him to feel the need of the salvation of Christ. In the significant language of Paul, the law was our schoolmaster unto Christ. In other words, the reason why people often do not feel their need for Jesus is because they are not convinced of the depth of their own sin. They're unaware of the true hardness of their heart. And unless the Lord will bring us to see that, we will live forever in destruction. You all know now, by, uh, by now, that I'm a fan of Pilgrim's Progress. All of my references are dated. I'm not at all current anymore, and I'm just coming to grips with that. Pilgrim's Progress was written in the 1600s, so a little dated reference, uh, but it's a good, worthwhile story. If you ever try to read it, since I've mentioned it a number of times, it's tricky to read sometimes because the language sounds like it came from the 1600s, but Pilgrim's Progress was written by John Bunyan and is a story or an allegory. The arc of the story uh, begins with a man whose name is Christian. They all have names that are wor words like this, but he's called Christian. And the arc of the story is about his journey from the city where he lives, which is the city of destruction, to the celestial city. And before Christian even begins his journey out of destruction on his way to the celestial city, and even long before Christian meets Jesus, or the tomb of Jesus, where Jesus had died and rose again. We see Christian at the very beginning of the book sitting outside of his, outside of his house. And Christian is clothed in rags. He has a book in his lap, which is the Bible. And on his back is a great burden. And as he reads from the book, Christian begins to tremble and weep. He's confronted, as he reads in the book, the first covenant. He's confronted with the weight of his own disobedience. And as a result of that, Christian cannot eat. He cannot sleep. He ends up crying out, what shall I do? And then he meets a man called Evangelist who points him in the direction of the gate in which will start his journey. But before Christian goes to the gate to begin his journey toward the celestial city by the grace of Jesus, Christian begs his wife and his kids to go with him. Please, he says, let's leave the city of destruction. Please go with me, but they won't go. They think he's crazy, and they themselves feel no burden of guilt because everything as they see it is just fine. And so Christian is left with no choice 
To follow after Jesus means he has to leave his dearly loved wife and children behind. It's a painful scene to watch. And in the rest of the story, we hear almost nothing about what happens to the wife and children. But there's a sequel. Pilgrim's Progress, book two, which then begins with his wife, Christian's wife, back home in the city of destruction. Her name there we find out is Christiana. And it does not start with her sitting outside of her house with a book in her lap and a burden on her back, weeping over her sin. It starts with her, it says, considering herself. She's reflecting on what has happened with her and her husband. She considers how unkind she's been, how unnatural, how ungodly she has treated him, and her conscience, it says, begins to be clogged. She's loaded with guilt. And Christiana begins to feel the burden on her back. His words, what shall I do, begins ringing in her ears until finally she cries out to her children, I send your father away. Because of my sin, he left and he's gone. And they all burst into tears. She knows in this she has broken her covenant with God and with her covenant. The fault is hers. When she has met then the first covenant, she is then being prepared. Seeds are being planted within her, and eventually she begins her journey and their journey as the kids come with her toward the celestial city in a scene of hope and bravery. We know that the first covenant is insufficient by itself. If it's all there is, all we will have is a bunch of broken hearts all over the floor. The first covenant is ready to vanish away because God has made it obsolete by a better covenant. But God has also made the first covenant to prepare our hearts by breaking them so that we'll see our sin And so that we will be prepared to see the grace of our Savior. And when we meet him, we'll embrace him with gladness, with humbleness, with thankfulness. So that we'll we'll cry out with the Apostle Paul, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we know that your ways are always wise. And we praise you for your good wisdom. Lord, as part of the first covenant, would you humble us by shining your light onto our sin? Cause us to see it so that we would come to you. And Lord, would you lift us up by your grace and for your glory. Thank you for all that you are and all that you do. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.